Thank you for listening to this podcast from Renew San Diego, a church for the good of all our neighbors in North Park, San Diego. If you're ever in the area on Sunday mornings, we'd love to welcome you. More information at renewsandiego.org. Share with a friend. See you soon. A reading from Genesis chapter 4, verses 1 through 18. Now the man knew his wife Eve, and she conceived and bore Cain, saying, I have produced a man with the help of the Lord. Next she bore his brother Abel. Now Abel was a keeper of sheep, and Cain a tiller of the ground. In the course of time, Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground, and Abel, for his part, brought of the firstlings of his flock their fat portions. And the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering, but for Cain and his offering, he had no regard. So Cain was very angry and his countenance fell. The Lord said to Cain, why are you angry? And why has your countenance fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is lurking at the door. Its desire is for you, but you must master it. Cain said to his brother Abel, let us go out to the field. And when they were in the field, Cain rose up against his brother Abel and killed him. Then the Lord said to Cain, where is your brother Abel? He said, I do not know. Am I my brother's keeper? And the Lord said, what have you done? Listen, your brother's blood is crying out to me from the ground. And now you are cursed from the ground, which has opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. When you till the ground, it will no longer yield to you its strength. You will be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth. Cain said to the Lord, my punishment is greater than I can bear. Today you have driven me away from the soil, and I shall be hidden from your face. I shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth, and anyone who meets me may kill me. Then the Lord said to him, Not so. Whoever kills Cain will suffer a sevenfold vengeance. And the Lord put a mark on Cain, so that no one who came upon him would kill him. Then Cain went away from the presence of the Lord and settled in the land of Nod, east of Eden. Cain knew his wife, and she conceived and bore Enoch. And he built a city and named it Enoch after his son Enoch. To Enoch was born Irad, and Irad was the father of Mahujael, and Mahujael the father of Methushael, and Methushael the father of Lamech. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Please take a moment for silent reflection.
Let's pray together. Gracious God, as we listen to these ancient stories, as we come to this very moment and reflect on our own lives, help us to see there's actually a bridge. There's a connection. That the violence in this world and the violence in our own hearts, the ways that we don't give the benefit of the doubt to others or to ourselves, the ways of the world with societies clashing and violence, that is nothing new. But it's also not the end of the story. However we enter into this very moment, maybe feeling that violence, that turmoil in ourselves, or being overwhelmed as we turn on our news feed, and it just seems to pour in like a fire hose of bad news, of nations at war, or threats of war, of nuclear proliferation, of refugees because of famine. Not having enough. And so as we apply this scripture to our lives, help us to use it as a lens of our world and to see that you see the brokenness of this world. You see the reality of our own lives, all the ways we are put together and we get it, all the ways we feel like we're coming undone and we don't get it. A beautiful mess, full of contradiction and complexity. You see it all, and you know us, and you love us. You give yourself to us in the person and work of your son, Jesus Christ. And so now we pray by the power of your Holy Spirit that you teach us in a way that our lives would be transformed. You'd send us out to be your very agents of renewal wherever we go. We pray these things in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Whenever I hear this story, I'm reminded of a news article years ago that talks about in 1991, these two hikers were hiking in the Italian Alps, and they came across the corpse of a body that had died 5,300 years ago. Later, he would be dubbed Otzi the Iceman, preserved for more than 5,000 years in that dry, cold mountain air. Otzi is the oldest intact corpse ever found. Forensic investigation revealed that Otzi was most likely a shepherd. Otzi was also a murder victim. He had been shot in the back with an arrow. As a Bronze Age shepherd who became a murder victim, we might think of Otzi as the Abel of the Alps. It's interesting. It's sobering to think that the oldest human corpse was not found resting peacefully in a place of respect, but murdered in the back with an arrow. Unfortunately, violence is nothing new to the human race. I don't need to tell you that. See, the context of this story, we've been going through these original stories of where did everything start and where is it all going? And first we saw Genesis 1, it begins with, original blessing. A good and creative God creates the beautiful world with humanity at its crown and blesses it and says, it is very good. Last week we saw that it didn't remain that way for long. As the first rebellion turned into the first disobedience, which turned into the first fracturing of all that beauty, things come undone. And at this point, they're out of the garden. 
They're out of that place of shalom, that place of preparation, the place of flourishing. They're outside of it. And notice, God is still present even outside the garden, even in the midst of the brokenness, even in the midst of the rebellion. God is still at work pursuing God's people. And he promises one day I will put all of this to rights. But right now, it's not right. At first they're hiding and they're blame shifting. It wasn't me who wanted the fruit. It was her. It was her fault. Scapegoating. Blame shifting. And now we see the first murder in recorded human history which is tied together with the founding of the first city. Think about that. The first murder led to the founding of the first city. We'll get into that more in a second. And here's the point. If Adam and Eve show you how individuals have gone wrong, how we've gone astray and off the rails, Cain and Abel show us how entire civilizations go off the rails. They built a civilization on power, established by murder and enforced by violence. Now, this is not a unique story, unfortunately. When we looked at Genesis 1, the creation narrative, we looked at other creation narratives of the time. We looked at the the Mesopotamian creation narrative, the Enuma Elish, where the foundation of this world was actually violence. And this is all a result of Marduk, the great god, killing the demigod Tiamat. And through her disposed of body came all of creation. It started in violence. And you see the creation narrative that we receive from scripture is completely different. A good and beautiful God creates a good and beautiful world. There's this overflow of creative, self-giving love that pours forth into this world at the foundation of everything. And now we see, in the midst of other competing foundation stories of cities, the foundation of that first city called Enoch. See, there was already a foundation narrative for Rome. Do you know the foundation, the the origin story for Rome? There were two brothers named Romulus and Remus, who were the sons of the war god Mars. And they had been abandoned at birth and raised by a she-wolf, in one, at one moment in a great argument, Romulus killed Remus. And after killing his brother, had the right to name the capital whatever he wanted. Named it after himself, Rome on Palatine Hill. With the legions and the army and the power to keep it all together and to protect it. With the senate to govern it. But at the core was violence. The founding narrative of that city. This is in some of our greatest literature and film. In the Lord of the Rings, Smeagol kills Deagle over what? The precious ring. Power. And the point is this. Whether Babylon or Rome or Mordor, there's something insidious about the violence within us. And it leaks out and poisons all creation. Power and violence mixed together. Now, this story would have originally been read when the people of God were in exile in Babylon. And they would have been asking questions like, is this the end for us? What kind of people are we becoming? What do we do with the violence out there? And what do we do with the violence in our own hearts and lives? 
And the scripture teaches us about this insidious violence that is overcome by God's pervasive grace. First, look at this insidious violence. The word insidious means treacherous, crafty, proceeding in subtle ways but with harmful effects. It sneaks up on you. The city of Enoch, the foundation story is the story of two brothers, Cain, whose name means productive, Abel, whose name means vapor. You already know this story is not going to end well. Names matter. Names have deep and profound meaning. And it says Abel's offering was regarded by God, but Cain's was not. The seeds of jealousy are already sown. It doesn't tell us why. I mean, we have a couple of clues here. It does say that Abel came and brought the first of his offering, the best part, the firstlings, the fatty parts, the good meat. It doesn't say anything about it. Cain just kind of brought an offering. So maybe it was that Abel was bringing the better stuff, greater sacrifice, greater devotion, greater care. Later, the author of Hebrews will say that Abel brought his offering by faith. But the author here is not concerned with why. The author is really concerned with what happened next. When Cain saw this, his countenance fell. His face fell. Now, this Hebrew translation of his face, his countenance fell, not so much saying that he was sad and started looking at his shoes. It's more of a way of saying he was deliberately beginning to turn his face away from God not wanting to relate to God. He's beginning to turn away. He's beginning to lose his focus. He's beginning to forget who he is and whose he is. But God won't give up on him. God tries to get in front of him and starts counseling him, confronting him, warning him. You know, as a parent, there are moments where you are trying to confront and counsel and give the best advice you can to your children. And they will just put their fingers in their ears and close their eyes and they will not listen and they will walk and do what they were going to do anyways. And in the moment, the temptation as a parent is to say, fine, go ahead. And you're always evaluating your own battles. But if it's important enough, if it would actually cause harm to them or, you know, or somebody else or it's a major learning moment, as a parent, you do everything you can to get in front of them and say, this is a bad decision. I want you to make great decisions. And that's act, it's easier to say, go do whatever you want. I, I want to go watch Netflix anyways. It's much harder as a loving parent to get in front and wrestle with your child until they can see a good way forward. Or at least embrace a good way forward even if they can't see it. And God as a loving parent is saying to Cain, you are walking into a trap and I will not let you go without doing everything to warn you. He counsels him. He confronts him. He warns them, sin is lurking at your door. More on this later. But the two brothers go for a walk across the farmland, and the talk turns into an argument. And the argument turns into a fight. And the fight turns into a killing. But sin had been crouching at Cain's door ever since they left the door of the house. Later, we hear that Abel's blood cries out for justice and Cain is banished as a wanderer going east of Eden. 
in these early pages of scripture in Genesis, going east is always a code for something. Adam and Eve, when they were banished from the garden, went east. Cain is banished and goes east. When the people try to build the Tower of Babel and they're scattered, they travel east. East is a word picture of moving away from God and moving toward evil and destruction. He went east and he settled in a land called Nod. That's the Hebrew word for wandering, for drifting. It's a sinister word. So Cain is really lost now. He's moving east toward no man's land, where you would expect for God not to be. And he built a city, the first city. Romulus kills Remus and establishes Rome. Cain kills Abel, Abel and establishes Enoch. And the pattern is the same. Cities are founded on violence. It's the, it's the first reaction of cultures clashing together. In our story of the United States, often untold, if you go to New York City, go to Manhattan, Go to Wall Street. Why do you think Wall Street's called Wall Street? Because there was a wall there. A wall to protect warring factions of people from creating violence on one another. Insidious nature. We take violence for granted. It seeps into us as well. Another parenting moment, forgive me, but Maybe if you've ever been around kids, you hear this, when they kind of get to the teen, tween time and they want to start watching R-rated movies. R, you know, everyone knows R-rated is 17 and above. And then you're, you're, the child will come and make the case, can I watch this movie? And then the grown-up says, well, what is it rated R for? And if they say, well, if it's rated R because there's a lot of bad words, you say, no, I don't want you talking like that. It's rated R, it says nudity. What's nudity? No, I don't want you watching that movie. But it, it says it's rated R for violence. And you go, oh, that's okay, then go ahead and watch it. Insidious. It doesn't have racy images. It doesn't have foul language. It just has innocent people being murdered. And we go, that's fine, go ahead and watch it. Because we take murder for granted. We take violence for granted. We overlook it because it's the foundation of the city built by Cain. But it's not just out there, right? Maybe you're thinking, I'll never kill anybody. As one friend used to say, you're not Attila the Hun, but it's not for lack of talent. The point is the seed is in there, and the seed starts small. It starts when you're driving, and that person's taking too long at the red light, and the road rage begins to kick in. It starts in your workplace, when you're snubbed by somebody else, and you begin to plot your vengeance in some way. It starts on the playground. When a child realizes it's easier to take that thing than to share or to have community. It happens on the basketball court when the hard foul turns into the fight that empties both bleachers. The seed is in there and the question is, where do you live into the city of violence? Where do you harbor that anger, that resentment, that judgment? Now how do we get there? 
Here's a word you might expect to hear at church. How does scripture say that we got there? Here's a word, sin, okay? But let's unpack that. This is actually the first mention of the word sin in the Bible. Later in the, Hebrew, in the New Testament, which is translated from Greek, the Greek word for sin is hamartia. Hamartia was an archery term. You'd hear it at the Olympics. If an archer was trying to hit the target, the bullseye, and they missed, they'd say they sinned. They didn't hit the mark. They fell short. They were off of their intention. So sin at its core is not a moral term. It's talking about the ways that this world falls short of the glory that God created us for. It includes ethics and morals, but it's not merely that. And here's the term is introduced. And what does God say? Sin is not neutral. Sin is lurking at your door. There's this picture of it lying in wait for you, crouching at your door. This picture of active, strategic, crouching, waiting. Florence and I have been to Zambia, and we went on this safari, and one of the most epic moments of that safari was watching lions hunt at night. And in the midst of a lightning-streaked sky, with the thunder roaring over us, we followed these two lions who were hunting a pack of gazelles. They walked up on them, side by side. Before they were detected, they were split up, and I only saw one. I said to our guide as we sat in our convertible Land Rover, like we were exposed to the elements here, elements being lions, hunting. I said, where did the other one go? He said, he's going around the side quietly. She's going around the side quietly. And she will crouch. And she will wait. And right when the gazelle thinks it is safe, she will pounce on it and go for its jugular vein. God goes to Cain in the midst of his anger and resentment and says, sin is crouching at your door. You think the coast is clear. You think the threat level is low. You're in more danger than you realize because you are aiding and abetting a known enemy in your own heart, and it will poison you. The point is, you don't do sin. Sin does you. It poisons everybody who touches it. This image of crouching is one in which it is making itself seem smaller than it actually is. And then it grows. We know this. In terms of behavioral psychology, thoughts lead to actions. Actions lead to habits. Habits lead to your character. But it all started way back with your thoughts. And then it pounced on you. Are you aware of those crouching sins of your life? Of anger, resentment, holding on to a grudge, pursuing money at the cost of your own health or your relational health, pursuing entertainment as a way of escape, and now you don't know how to relate to the real world. The thing that used to be the medicine has become the sickness, and you're disconnected. It crouches at your door. I wonder if this is why Jesus wisely said, you have heard it said, do not kill. But I say, 
whoever entertains anger against their brother has already committed murder in their heart. It starts small and it grows. And God says, cut it off at the root. It's much easier. You, you look at a little tiny acorn, you can crush it. But once that acorn gets in the ground, with enough rain and sunshine, it will grow into an oak tree whose roots can disrupt the concrete pavement and would take many people to take down. It's much easier to crush an acorn than it is to take out an oak tree. And God's warning to Cain and to you and me is catch it while it's small before it grows and takes over your life. And so here's the diagnostic question. Where are you watering those seeds in your own life? Now I realize this is countercultural because we live in a world that will celebrate you getting ahead of other people at any cost. And there you will be ahead. If it goes well, you will be ahead, but you will be alone. We live in a world that celebrates deciding that you are right and the other person's wrong and scapegoating them and throwing stones at them. And there you will be right, but you will be eroded from within with bitterness. Where are you watering those seeds right now? How do we escape this insidious violence, not only out there, but in here? And here's the answer. You can't. can't. Albert Einstein famously said, our current problems cannot be solved by the same minds that created them. We need a different way of thinking from outside to come in. If you go to any 12-step recovery meeting, at some point some wise person with lots of recovery will say something like, my best thinking got me into this room. My best thinking cannot get me out of it. I need help from outside. We need God to do for us what we cannot do for ourselves. We need God's pervasive grace to break through. And that's exactly what we see in Genesis 4. What's God doing? Notice this. What is God doing? Cain is east of Eden. God goes and gets in front of him. Cain turns his face away from God, losing his focus and walks, and God tries to continually get in front of him. Cain is angry, and God pursues him. Do you realize that God pursues you not when you're at your best only, but when you're at your worst? How does that make you feel? Furthermore, let me take it a step further, because I realize that might make you feel uncomfortable unless you realize why he's pursuing you. Do you realize God would go anywhere to bring you back to God's love and presence and care? I think this is why when Jesus wanted to explain what the kingdom of God is like, in Luke chapter 15, he gave three examples. He said, the kingdom of God is like a shepherd who had a hundred sheep, and one went off and got lost, and the shepherd left everything to bring that sheep back and threw a party when it was rescued. The kingdom of God is like a woman who had a lot of gold coins, but she lost one, and she tore her house up until she found that coin. The kingdom of God is like a wealthy landowner who had two sons, and one of them went to him and said, I wish you were dead. Give me my inheritance money now. And then he left and he squandered it in a foreign land, and he came back. And that father had been waiting on the doorstep, scanning the horizon for the first sign of his son to come home. 
And when he saw him, he dropped everything, ran to him, put the family robe and ring and sandals on him, and threw a huge party because he was home. Now think about that. The sheep got lost because that's what sheep do. Sheep are dumb animals. The coin got lost by no fault of its own. It's an inanimate object. It was just succumbing to gravity. It probably fell and rolled underneath something. But in the third example, that son purposefully ran away. Meant to do it. Premeditated. Strategized it. Ran. And Jesus says, God the Father still goes running after that son. Still goes running after you. Whether you've fallen into your current circumstances, where you are right now, or whether you premeditated it. He says, I want to get in front of you. I welcome you back to myself. See the initiative of God to you. And as God gets in front of you, like God got in front of Cain, he begins questioning and confronting. A good friend will always ask tough questions. You know someone doesn't have much trust with you yet if they're always agreeing with you. Scripture says an enemy will multiply kisses, but wounds from a friend can be trusted. If you're surrounded by an echo chamber of yes, you do not have a growth chamber for your life. And God gets in front of him and begins asking him tough questions. Cain, why are you angry? Cain, where's your brother? Cain, what have you done? Now, unlike you and me, when God asks a question, it's not for more information. You cannot tell an omniscient being something that God does not already know. It's always for relationship. It's always to bring them along. And he warns Cain, your anger and your resentment will eat you up. Are you aware that in your life, anger and resentment drive all sorts of behaviors? And he confronts Cain with his violence like a good doctor, calling it out in order to diagnose it and treat it. Another way that God loves Cain, his pervasive grace comes after him, is there is judgment Now, I know someone right now says, oh my gosh, this is the part I can't stand. Christians talking about God and judgment. But yes, and hear me out. Would you really want a God that can look at the murder of an innocent brother and do nothing about it? Is that a loving God? Our brokenness has consequences. Cain will be removed from the situation and moved out. Cain, you are a danger to other people. You need to move on. And even then, though, and hear this, there's grace. Even in judgment, there's grace. Cain says, if I leave, I'll be killed. Remember, Cain got his food from the land. He can't move the farm. He's about to leave everything that he has. If I leave, I'll be killed. And God says, no, you won't. I'll protect you. I'll look after you. God does not continue that cycle of violence. God interrupts it. And that's the mystery of God's grace. That God's protection extends even into the land of Nod, previously thought to be beyond protection. 
I wonder if that's what the early church leader, Paul, was getting at in Romans chapter 8, interestingly writing to the first church in Rome, for I am convinced that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present nor things to come, nor power nor height nor depth nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Jesus Christ our Lord. And even in the earliest pages of the Old Testament, you're seeing that kind of never stopping, never giving up, pursuing love toward Cain. And the point is, God does it to Cain, and God does it to you and me. But all of this really reaches its crescendo. On this side of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection, as this all points toward another Abel, who was surrounded by Cain's, who was innocent and murdered. Later, the writer of Hebrews will write, you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to the God and the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteousness made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to his sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. What does that mean? Abel's blood cried out for justice and for judgment. Jesus' blood shed on the cross cries out for forgiveness and mercy. God interrupts that insidious cycle of violence with grace. Judgment and grace come together on the cross. As every act of violence, of injustice, all of the things we've done, all the things that have been done to us, all of the brokenness and sin individually and all that of all society, of all history, of all time, comes to a crescendo and is laid on his shoulders on the cross. And he says, do your worst. Absorbing the pain and penalty of sin and death. And even as he's on that cross, as the society, the religious establishment with the political establishment are operating according to their original rules of foundation, we solve our problems with violence. He's on the cross, not saying, Father, get them. Let's show them what real power looks like. Saying, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. A new city is being birthed in the midst of the old. And three days later in his resurrection, he shows that the brokenness of insidious violence in our lives and in this world are not the final word. But history is actually going somewhere. That his new life overcomes death. And even as we begin in these early pages of Scripture, when you turn toward the end in Revelation chapter 20 and 21, what do you get? A city. A city. The heavenly city being lowered to earth as a bride is adorned for her groom. A new creation. With every people of every ethnicity and culture streaming together in a great celebration. It literally says every tear will be wiped from every eye, every injustice will be done away with, death itself will be no more. It's all going somewhere. The consummation of history. 
And so the invitation, friends, is today, with the reality of that insidious violence out there and in here, to be cognizant of it, to be honest about it, to own it, and to look toward that new city, to actually be ambassadors of that new kingdom right now. In a moment, we'll pray the Lord's Prayer, and part of it says, Father, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And so you and I are invited in our city to live according to that heavenly city right now. That's our calling, friends. And as you do, this world will never be the same, but you know what else? You will never be the same. Let's pray. Gracious God, as we read these ancient stories, help us to find ourselves in your great story. You are the unchanging, everlasting, ever-loving God. And so just as you showed Cain that grace that was magnified on the cross as you bestowed grace on all creation, help us now by your grace to be people who can hear your voice, trust your calling, and follow you wherever you lead. I pray now by the power of your Holy Spirit that you would make these words specific to all of us listening now. We pray these things in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Thank you.